I'm thankful to be part of this church family. Um, God has been good to us, and especially in this last year, uh, as God has brought us more together uh, as a church family, it, it, it seems that we've been in a long time. And so the one-mindedness that we share with each other, um, the understanding of gathering on Sunday to come and worship the Lord together, uh, loving God, loving our neighbor as ourself, beginning to see this more and more. I'm not saying it wasn't there in the past, but it just seems especially sweet from my observation. But the scripture reading this morning is from Paul's epistle to the Romans, uh, chapter 1. We'll be talking about uh, Paul, very specifically in the call of Paul and as it relates to us and what we can take from that, especially as we look behind us, uh, the year, what it has, has uh, how it has been, uh, also looking forward to the year to come. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to talk about Paul's calling today and seek to understand how that relates to us as well, the call of the Christian. So may God reveal to us the truth of his word this morning. Let's pray. We ask, O oh Lord, that by means of your Holy Spirit and your word, you will work in our hearts today. That we may be brought closer to Christ, Lord, to know him, to love him, to stand tall in the face of adversity, to fear God and not fear man. So we ask that you would impress that upon our hearts today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> A year ago, January, the 53rd annual meeting of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, happened January 16th. The chairman of the World Economic Forum, his name is Klaus Schwab. He's written several books. He's very influential. In his books, he quotes philosopher and nihilist Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche believes in his philosophical view of life that all will come to nothing. All we have is the here and now. In the natural world, there is no ultimate transcendent hope. So in Schwab's books, he is quoting people like this. He also quotes the evil Italian communist Antonio Gramsci from pre-World War II. Gramsci's tactics or experience a modern revival in our secular universities and in groups like BLM and groups who advocate for the sexualization of our children. So this is who Klaus Schwab is quoting. 
He also quotes Harvard cognitive psychologist Steven Pinker. Pinker sings the siren song of godless, perpetual human progress. Schwab also quotes Hebrew University historian Yuval Noah Harari, who supposedly cares about human suffering, but he qualifies that. He cares about human suffering, but with nihilistic composure. Schwab, in his books, he also quotes Princeton bioethicist Peter Singer, who has given rise to the modern animal rights movement. He also believes that the logical end to human abortion includes the euthanasia of toddlers. All these who Schwab quotes in his books are unapologetically and aggressively atheist. More of these World Forum Economic Forum board members, Lawrence Fink of what you may have heard of BlackRock. They believe in environmental social governance, ESG, investing, or they would call it socially conscious investing. Um, and BlackRock was at the forefront of when they were switching to these gender neutral and non-binary in the workplace. They began to insist that all of their employees put their pronouns in there as they were signing off on any communication. And if you don't, then your job would be threatened. And of course, many others have followed suit. And because of the influential nature of Lawrence Fink, because of this influential nature, other Fortune 500 companies, companies that trade uh, in NASDAQ and the, the New York Stock Exchange, they begin doing the same thing and adopting the same forceful tactics that if you don't do this, you will be fired. Other World Economic Forum board members include Christine Lagarde, who is over the International Monetary Fund and European Central Bank. Al Gore, former VP, who sold his soul and gave up his marriage for climate change. Ngozi Akonjoela is the director of the World Trade Organization. She is also part of the World Economic Forum. Christia Freeland, Canadian Minister of Finance who froze financial accounts of Canadian citizens, who, these Canadian citizens who gave financial assistance to the Freedom Convoy in 2022, actually froze their bank accounts where they could not access their own money. More than 50 of these type of government leaders attended last year's World Economic Forum. The buzzwords for that particular conference were unity, global collaboration. They use the word the global village a lot, global economy, climate crisis, renewable energy, artificial intelligence boosting access to government services. And then also from the 2022 conference, a new coalition of trade members on climate was launched. It brought together over 50 countries to boost what they say is international cooperation on climate, trade, and sustainable development. They call it connecting the dots that's vital to find coherent global solutions. You see the movement toward globalization, 
Their keynote speaker from last year, Guterres, Antonio Guterres, stressed, there are no perfect solutions in a perfect storm, but we can work to control the damage and seize opportunities, especially when there's these crises. World Economic Forum President Borge Brende told them, the group gathered in his closing remarks, in an uncertain and challenging time, one thing is clear, we can shape a more resilient, sustainable, and equitable future, but the only way to do that is together. This year's World Economic Forum Conference is right around the corner. It begins in January the 15th through the 19th back in Davos, Switzerland. It'll primarily focus on exploring the opportunities enabled by these new technologies that are being developed like AI, their implications on decision-making and global partnerships. The World Economic Forum now, I want you to remember, it has no actual power. They don't have a standing army. They have no seat at the UN. They would be what we would call stateless. But they have influence in all the first world countries and as many of the third world countries as well, who send these delegates and send these to participate in this World Economic Forum. You see, Charles Schwab is a networker. He brings together world leaders who participate voluntarily. He's giving them a global organizing vision, and that vision is akin to the Marxist view of absolute power of the state. However, he hopes to accomplish this without a world war. This one involves a voluntary conjoining, voluntary conjoining of world governments. It's a fact of history that absolute power is just a step away from totalitarianism. The World Economic Forum is offering this under the cover of environmental and humanitarian virtue. So you're telling me that tyrants who ascribe to this philosophy really care about a sustainable future? Or do they care about political power? The majority ascribe to these unworkable socialistic and outright utopian ideas. They're certain that they will succeed when the last government leaders could not. So under the threat of this climate apocalypse that we hear about on a regular basis... Under the threat of humanitarian breakdown, Marxism and fascism lives on, mostly under the guise of socialism. This is not a political speech, but this is what we are looking at as we look at the past year. Their goal is to educate, persuade, coerce, even coerce humanity away from understanding that we are beings made in the image of God, and they want to push us toward this atheistic view that, number one, we are evolutionary creatures separate from any God or creator. Their atheistic view, number two, that we are creatures who by our own wills, intellectually, politically, economically, can chart and control our own destiny. These are the goods they are peddling which these governments are accepting and are enforcing. Buying into narcissistic ideas like this, that man is ultimately in control of his own destiny, it makes it easy for certain things to happen. Number one, psychologically entice a populace. Number two, redefine 
science. How many people do you know are doing that? Number three, biologically tamper with the ignorant, weak, and vulnerable in our society. And number four, it makes it easy to groom the citizenry educationally and culturally. So via the temptation of Satan himself, a lot of physical, psychological abuse on the part of our political and intellectual elites, it's easy to convince the highest form of God's creatures, humans, to agree to abandon all fear of God in lieu of the fear of man. The fear of man who wields political and economic and intellectual power. Most, if not all, that's transcended in the last 60 years has, designed to, has been designed to get us to accept this dystopian view of reality. Whether you care to accept it or not, there is this matrix, if you would, intellectual, political, cultural, this matrix where all these things come together and our perception of reality is beginning more and more to be technologically planned and managed to control and steer us in whichever direction, even if it's coercive directions. So with their pagan and nihilistic worldviews, they destabilize They dehumanize, they demoralize the Christian worldview through every means available to them. The destruction of the nuclear family, children being indoctrinated by the state, abortion, euthanasia, the nominalization of God in society, the eradication of religious education, refusing to enforce the rule of law, Replacing real human connection and interaction with surveillance technology and specifically the social media platforms. Engineering these financial crises, plural. Irresponsible and immoral taxation. Encouraging endless wars. Allowing massive migration. Stress, anxiety, depression, addiction to drugs and alcohol. And these constant fear-mongering tactics. You look at their atheistic worldview, there's other things that underlie that. One of these things is moral relativism. Moral relativism says the standard for truth and beauty in any society is determined by individuals and societies rather than by our Creator God. They're not only moral relativists, they are pagans. And what I mean by paganism is that the ultimate or chief end of man is the pursuit of pleasure by any and every means possible. No restrictions whatsoever. Even abortion, just case in point, would fit under this. If a young lady would like to have an abortion, she wants to be able to live a pagan lifestyle but not have to deal with the consequences of this pagan lifestyle. So in their mind... I am in control of my destiny. I am not going to allow this child to get in the way of my pursuit of pleasure, of my pursuit of my goals. And you hear that a lot, especially of the, among those who are seeking abortion, abortions. They are nihilists. And nihilists, like we were talking about Nietzsche, it says this, it says, all is nothing. There is only nature, the here and now. Nothing exists that cannot be perceived with the five senses. All comes to nothing. 
How can you ascribe to this philosophy and be a happy person? I don't get it. But yet they put on their smile and they act like everything is okay. So we are being influenced by these relativists, by these pagans, by these nihilists. We're being influenced to move away from all the things that give us strength, security, purpose, and meaning in life. And I would note that a weak and immoral, disconnected, ignorant, and unhealthy population is an easy target for the creation of an entire generation of lawless and androgynous beings. And what I mean by the word androgynous means those who believe that there are no gender distinctions. Masculinity is under attack psychologically and culturally and even biologically. Women are being replaced in sports and in entertainment and in politics by men pretending to be women. Children are being indoctrinated at school to think that gender is a self-defined choice. The transgender movement is not a grass movement. It is Sodom and Gomorrah. It is the Baals, the Ashtaroths, and the Moloch's. The gods of the ancient world, Sumerian world, who are now coming for our society. It has nothing to do with people's freedom of expression, freedom of sexuality or civil rights. It is sinfulness and evil bound up in the heart of man. So I ask you, we look behind us, we see all of this in our wake as a society. Does it scare you? I ask you, As we move forward into the new year where we fear man instead of fear God. Will we put our faith in our civil government and leaders? Will we follow these technologically savvy and exorbitantly rich people who are wanting to control the way we think? Will we follow our health gurus, our entertainment heroes, our social media influencers and yes that's very much of a thing the writer of hebrews puts it this way therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us lay aside these philosophies of life let us lay aside these fear-mongering tactics lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us and why So we can look to Jesus, the author and finisher, the founder and protector of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God Almighty. How can we, how can we get down in the dumps when we have a God like this? We know what the stakes are. Evil is bound up, even, Scripture says, even in the heart of a child. And that's why God has given us our children, is so that we can root that out. We can be the kind of husbands and wives and fathers and mothers that we need to be. To be the families that we need to be to literally change our society. So we look to Paul today. Paul has plenty of recommendations for us. I'm going to begin with this and go through some of the things that Paul has given us in order to live our lives, the encouragements, the admonishments that he gives us. He says, I I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, 
by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living and sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul, in other scriptures that he has written, he says, testify to all Jews and Gentiles of repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, follow me as as I follow Christ. He says, Don't count your life precious to yourself, but complete the ministry that has been given to you. He says in another place, testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Don't shrink, he says, from proclaiming the kingdom of God. He says, proclaim the whole counsel of God. Walk in good works which God prepared for you beforehand. He says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He says, don't walk in the futility and darkness of the godless Gentiles. Don't give yourself over to sensuality, greed, or impurity. Don't give yourself to falsehood, but speak truth with your neighbor. Walk circumspectly, not as wise, or excuse me, not as fools, but as wise. He says, redeem the time for the days are evil. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the full armor of God to stand against the wiles of the devil. You see, we have this guidebook and the Scriptures bring us hope and comfort. They don't put fear into our hearts, especially in the face of adversity. And especially in the face of the type of adversity that Paul was facing in his day. So more than one theologian even has claimed that the book of Romans has awakened him from dogmatic slumbers. There's a main theme that keeps cropping up in the book of Romans. And that is this. Pure and undefiled religion designed by God could not be more different from the ways of men. It confounds our modern sense of self-reliance. It turns the innate goodness of man on its head. It points us outside of ourselves to Christ, our Savior. And in the interest of fairness, I should say that if we as a church follow these teachings, our lives, our families, our church, our community will not be the same. It awakens us from the inside out. Martin Luther at Worms in Germany, after he had written his books, he had stood against... Popery. He has stood against the Roman Catholic doctrine that you had to do these things. You had to do these sacraments in order to earn your salvation. He stood against these and he was called to account by the government authorities, by the religious authorities at Worms. But this should illustrate the overflow of truth into our lives when he made this remark, when he was asked to recant renounce his beliefs, retract his writings, Martin Luther didn't just immediately stick it in their face, but he said, give me 24 hours to think about this. He came back the next morning and he laid out why he was doing what he was doing and he ended it with this. He said, here I stand. God help me. I can do no other. You see, true faith operates that way. It doesn't cower in light of what's going on in our society around us. 
when we really understand God and His gospel, we can stand we can stand firm. We can do no other. We're impelled to act in accord with that truth. And that's the outlook of Paul, Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans. Romans is written so that we can understand God's plan for us. His righteousness. And then we can put that into action in our lives. In fact, it's inconceivable that the book of Romans would be studied merely as a theological document apart from being applied in our lives. We see Paul living it out in his call in the face of great persecution, great opposition, and great threats. And so notice a few things about Paul himself uh, as we look at these seven verses here in Romans. So it focuses on Paul like uh, you would receive an email and it's got the tag. It's got the person who sends it right there up front. It's Paul who wrote 87 of the 256 chapters in the New Testament. Almost a third of the New Testament Paul wrote. And of those 87 chapters, we have over 2,000 verses. In the first three epistles here... Paul's first three epistles contain more information, it seems, than all of the others. So Romans here, I think, and rightfully so, is placed at the head of the other epistles. It's given prominence. Many Christians throughout history will be like you and will enjoy studying this because it doesn't address a narrow particular set of issues uh, just in one locale only. It's addressed to the everyman Christian, all of us. We've looked in the book of Acts. We look to see how Paul was converted, how he went about in his own words preaching the kingdom at great risk to his own health and safety. He's now writing this epistle in around 57 A.D., likely from Corinth to Rome, and he had never even visited Rome. He had hoped to visit Rome, and God took him there, but not by Paul's will. It was by God's will, of course, when he was under arrest. He had wanted to go to Rome. He had wanted... Uh, to set up Rome as like a beachhead for him to reach out to the rest of uh, the Roman Empire with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the westward expansion of Christianity, but he hadn't been able to be there yet. So I want you to ask yourself these words that were originally contained in a letter, and are these, are these words intended only for Paul or for all of us? Be careful how you answer that, because we have a new year coming and New Year resolutions to make. That is a question you want to ask as we look at the beginning of Paul's, uh, let's, let's call it Paul's diary, if you would. Are these the writings of Paul only for Paul, or are they the writings of Paul for every man, every woman, all of us? Is it just for so we can master the information here, or is it for head knowledge, just to say that we know the finer points of finer doctrinal points. But I would say that Paul writes for all Christians as a Christian everyman, if you will. He had been uniquely prepared by the Holy Spirit. His admonitions and encouragements are beneficial. They are needful for us. Certainly, he was a unique minister of God, and we ought not expect to find any clones of the Apostle Paul. I don't expect any of us to be apostles. However... There are principles, biblical principles, that we can learn from the Apostle Paul in his life. 
not just for ministers or just for missionaries or super Christians, but these words are inspired by the Holy Spirit intended for all ages. And as we look here, I want you to notice these things as we look at the way Paul lived his life, the way he surrendered his will to God's. That these should be, should be uh, principles that should be true in the er- every believer in Christ. These should be true for all of us. The first is that Paul says that he is a bondservant. Someone who is committed to serve his master for life. So commentators are divided kind of how this should be rendered. Should we call it an outright slave or a servant? You might think it would be kind of soft to envision a servant who would come and work around your house and then call him a slave as you pay them. So as we think about this, uh, we, we we shouldn't think of the word slave in our own terms. A slave back in Roman society had no rights of their own. They had no rights of appeal in the Roman courts. Um, The slave was like a human uh, excavator, a bobcat or a, a tool, let's say. And that's what the way the slaves were looked upon as just a living mechanistic tool to do the bidding of the owner. However, in the Roman world, a slave could also be devoted to his master not not simply involuntarily by law, but voluntarily by choice. And that's what we're looking at here. The phrase bondservant indicates this. That the slave who would choose to follow his master for the rest of his life, that's how Paul saw his own insignificance. He was a bondservant. He was willingly pledged to Jesus Christ. And again, I would say, is this for Paul alone or is this for all of us? Doesn't that mean that we ought to see ourselves as those who have surrendered our desires and our rights and our will? As those of us who have given up our plans so that we can serve Christ in the same manner. As Christians, you and I are giving that calling It's not about us, it's not about our plans, but it's about the will of our Master, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, that is one of the themes of the book of Romans. It's used several times that you're either slaves to sin or you are slaves to righteousness. When you're slave to sin, in Romans 6, you did certain things and you behaved a certain way, but now that you have become saved, you are slaves to to God the Father Almighty. The Apostle taught, Romans concerns itself with this theme of servanthood. Let's, let's call it bond servanthood, if you will. It's not, shouldn't be, a theological word that's very heavy. We're called to be slaves. We're called to be like Christ in our practice. Each of us needs to see this tie-in between the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul, and servanthood. To the extent that we properly understand Romans, we will be led in this direction. The Word and the Spirit will lead us that way. Conversely, if you don't understand the doctrine in this book, likely you'll never stumble on the doctrine of servanthood on your own. We're by nature narcissistic and think only of ourselves and our own little empires. 
It's no accident Paul writes in this epistle. First of all, he announces himself who's been chosen for this. This path to slavery. He didn't ask to be, and never in his life did he ask to be treated as a dignitary. He didn't say, here you go, here I am, I'm writing you this book. Maybe you could roll out the red carpet next time when I show up. Maybe you could bow down to me. No, that was the opposite of what Apostle Paul was like. You see, it was more important for Christ to receive his due than for Paul to receive fading acclamation. It's more important for Christ to receive his due than for us to receive any acclamation. Paul was a servant. We never have too many of those in the church. Paul was in good company. Moses, Abraham, Joshua, David, Amos, all of these men called them themselves servants. So why don't you this morning renew yourself to servanthood? No matter what your age, no matter what your station in life, why not refocus your life and answer God's call to be a bond servant? Not go after the comforts that this life has to offer. Not to get these things as you would like, but for the rest of your life, may it now be your proper focal point, and that is to serve Christ voluntarily for life. That is the calling of Paul and should be the calling of us. Number two, Paul says he is called by God. And I would submit to you also that every Christian is called by God. That was a favorite term being called, and it refers to God, God's effective calling. I'm talking about the calling that makes a difference in your life. A person being where God wants them to be. Most often today, we associate a call with the telephone. It's a little unfortunate. We think of a call as the little earpiece in our ear so that we can drive hands-free and multitask. But Paul's call was long before cell phones, long before landlines. And it's not about simply receiving a call, but this is a call from the Creator of the universe, the Redeemer of our souls. God has created us with the ability that once He has awakened us to light and life, we have this inner response mechanism to desire Him more than anything else in this world. And it's not so important that we understand all of the mechanics of that call as it is to listen as God has given us His Word and wants us to heed His voice. You should know yourself as a person who is first of all a servant. Secondly, a person who is called by God. Thirdly, every Christian is called out of darkness and into life. Paul says he is commissioned as an apostle. Now we are not apostles. Apostleship or being an apostle in the technical sense that applied only to the Apostle Paul and the disciples, the twelve disciples, all except Judas, of course, who were defined and required to have seen the whole span or lived during that time when Christ lived, witnessed His life, His death, and His resurrection. Those who were apostles in the technical sense, and then there are those who hold the office, those disciples who were specifically with Jesus 
including Paul, were considered apostles. So we may not be apostles in the sense that they were apostles, but I will tell you that we have been given a commission to love God and love our neighbor as ourself, to take the gospel message into the world around us, to proclaim the gospel. We've been given a commission to, as, as we are going to make disciples, to baptize disciples and to teach disciples. We have that same commission for all of God's disciples. So if we want to serve Him in word and deed, we realize that these three things or four things coming. Every Christian is also commissioned, gifted, and equipped for a life of service to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then fourthly, Paul says that he is set apart. One who is set apart. One who is divided off from the others. One who is reserved. Have you been to Walmart or these other places now and see how they have all these reserve spaces Set about senior citizens, handicapped, retired service members, uh, expectant moms, you know, they're reserved for that. But this is not quite like that. <clears throat> Every Christian is consecrated for the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Paul was. And so as we look ahead, these four principles or review these four principles. Every Christian should be a voluntary bondservant. For life. Number two, every Christian is called by God. Number three, every Christian is commissioned, gifted, and equipped for service. And then this fourth point, every Christian is consecrated for the glory of God and the gospel. I'll give you a true account as we near the end of the sermon here of two reformers in Reformation England. The older at age 70 lost his life for the sake of the gospel. His name was Hugh Latimer. The younger, Nicholas Ridley, was aged 55. These were both well-known and favored as bishops under Henry VIII and Edward VI during Edward's short reign. But you know who came after Edward VI? That would be Queen Mary, also known as Bloody Mary in the Roman Catholic Church, utilized her and the political power that she brought to them Uh, in an effort to create what they call the Counter-Reformation. These two men were disliked by Queen Mary as she came to power. She restored papal authority, the Roman Catholic doctrine. These two men were accused of heresy for spreading the truth of the Word of God. They were imprisoned. They were mistreated in the Tower of London. They were tried for treason and and then sentenced to death. Queen Mary's terrible persecution of the Protestants gained her throughout history, and we still know her to this day as Bloody Mary. But Ridley, as they were tied to the stake together, to be burned at the stake, Nicholas Ridley said this to his uh, elder pastor friend, Latimer. He said, be of good heart, Brother Latimer, for God will either assuage the fury of this flame or else strengthen us to abide it. Does that bring up the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace? God will, whether we live or whether we die, we are going to honor God. 
So Latimer, in his response, <clears throat> said this, as the flames begin rising around their feet. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley. Play the man. <clears throat> we shall this day light a candle, such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And yes, the gospel will prevail. The church will go forth in hell cannot stop it so i would have an admonition in the vein of latimer admonition to you brothers and sisters of dbc i would say be of good comfort in the faith of face of atheism in the face of nihilism in the face of narcissism and moral relativism and paganism i would say stand firm in the face of those who would rule over us in a godly manner, ungodly manner, pardon me. <clears throat> Stand firm in the face of those who would rule over us in an ungodly or godless manner. Also be strengthened and built up in our faith that is rooted in the promises of our Creator and Redeemer. Therefore our faith can never be shaken. May our lights shine so brightly that others cannot help but see and glorify our Father who is in heaven. You see, we need not. We need not fear man when we have God on our side. <clears throat> I'm going to close with this prayer and still have the team come up, but I am going to close with this prayer. I've said it before, and even from this pulpit, I've said it for our college group, I've said it for our teen group and our family, and we say it a lot together. But it's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians for spiritual strength as we face this new year that is coming ahead of us. So let's bow for prayer. <clears throat> for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So let's have our team come up. Oh, I'm leading the last song. I am sorry. <laughs> so if you would stand and receive the blessing before we sing. Second Corinthians chapter 2. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing.